0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zoka. Africa, amka na unai.
1: Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa. I'm your host, Brett Wilkinson. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Thousands of travellers found to have no documents in South Africa. Conflict remains unabated in Darfu, Sudan. And UNCTAD warns the global development goals could be missed. Among the thousands of people stopped by soldiers during regular patrols in South Africa in 2016, over 15,000 were found to be undocumented persons from neighbouring countries. This is according to the South African National Defence Force, as it is mandated to ensure the territory integrity of the country's borders by means of Operation Corona. As part of the operation, troops are deployed for security along the country's borders with Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, Swaziland and Zimbabwe. More from Lieutenant Colonel Peter Paxton, Media Liaison Officer at the Joint Operations Headquarters of the the SANDF. Operation Corona is a name allocated to a specific operation
2: for the South African National Defence Force to secure the territorial integrity of our borders. We do not fulfill a role at border posts but away from border posts um, and I'm talking on the border line itself between border posts.
3: Tell us about some of the challenges that um, you experience or you encounter during such operations.
2: Our biggest challenge currently is to cover the borderline with the people that we have deployed on the borderline for this purpose. When we talk borderline patrols or border integrity operations, we talk about sea borders, land borders, and air borders. A land border in South Africa, That is now with all the island countries such as Lesotho, Uh, including that, all the other borders of of neighboring countries. That is a total of 4,470 kilometers plus minus. Then we have a sea border of about 2,700 kilometers and then a total air border of about 7,700 kilometers. Now, this in itself is a huge stretch of borderline that needs to be protected for illegal activities crossing the borders not making use of registered ports of entries uh, coming into South Africa. The second challenge that we have is if, if I can take you back to 2002 when this responsibility was taken away from the military and mm-hmm. given to the police and then once again introduced in 2007-2008 it was handed back to us uh, as a presidential commissioning as part of our job. We had, for example, vehicles that did the patrols up until 2002, 2003, mm. and then we had to go back with that same vehicle. So we did not have the opportunity to develop that type of vehicle, and it's a soft-skinned vehicle which is able to travel on the roads itself next to the border or to the to the fence,
3: Of course, successes have been there uh, because we know that you've been able to confiscate quite a number of illegal goods um, on a number of borders. If you can tell us briefly about that.
2: Statistics indicate, which I've issued uh, yesterday, Mm -hmm. we've confiscated about 31 million rand worth of Dachar, which is a big problem for us because it's obviously illegal and it's it's coming into South Africa for, for the wrong purpose. If we measure that against the last year figures, in total we confiscated about 25 tons of Dachar this year in comparison with last year, which was about 6 tons. This year it's about street value at about 1,200 rand per kilogram. Uh, we're looking at roughly 31 million, uh, as opposed to last year, which about, was about 8 or 9 million. We had a quite uh, a large haul of contraband Confiscated, mainly in the clothing, illegal and fake shoe business, that and all the other stuff that we confiscate. I hand it over to the police for further processing because there's a market in South Africa. However, we cannot allow the contraband to cross into South Africa, not through the normal port of of entry because there's obviously tax evasion on this because you need to pay tax when you import stuff. So so there's a revenue problem that we, that we are stopping. Mm. The rest of that, the 46 million between 46 and 23, that's now a variety of stuff, such as cigarettes crossing the border, huge amounts of cigarettes that mm. we've done this year.
3: Mm. But I suppose now with the festive season, it's now busy, so the chances of there being um, quite a number of smugglers um, is more, isn't
2: it? Yeah, there is. There's always a demand for the cheap stuff, but now with, with the festive season, there's a higher infl- an outflux of people crossing into neighboring countries. Zimbabweans living and staying in South Africa, going back to the families, the same with, with people living in uh, all the working in South Africa and Mozambicans and, and all over Africa people, they're going back to their families for this festive season. And sometimes we do find that that the permit have lapsed. so so to go through a port of entry is going to put them in trouble. so they they take the illegal route which is not crossing the border via a border post. so that so that um, Department of Home Affairs can process the the, the traveling documents. That, that That becomes a problem, but you're right. as you said, this time of the year there's there's, there's a higher, Outflux of people, there is now a high demand for vehicles, so that's why we are now focusing uh, uh, a bigger effort on on uh, illegal b- of vehicles traveling
1: through the fence into into countries, especially uh, into Mozambique. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Paxton, Media Liaison Officer at the Joint Operational Headquarters of the South African National Defense Force. He was talking to Homozo Mopilani.
4: All Lesotho nationals living in South Africa illegally have until the 31st of December 2016 to pay for the Lesotho special permit or face deportation. Application centres have opened up at six Lesotho border posts to receive the applications. Applications made this year will be received and the supporting documents can be submitted in the year 2017 by the end of March. If you are one of those that still have not applied and you are travelling to and from Lesotho, then use the Mobile Visa Facilitation Centres at the six border posts. And if you are unsure about what to do, then phone the VSF Call Centre on 87 230 0411 that's 087 230 channel africa the voice of the african renaissance
1: now to the troubled region of darfu in sudan where the joint african union united nations mission There, known in short as UNAMID, says the conflict that has been raging for more than 13 years may not end soon. UNAMID has been operating in Darfur for 11 years with the express mission of ending the conflict that has claimed the lives of more than 300,000 people since 2003. According to the UN and independent foreign as well as local experts researching the root cause of the conflict and ways to ending it. The conflict in Darfur puts Khartoum government troops and two rebel forces that they say they are currently fighting to free Darfur from what they characterize as Khartoum's shackles of oppression, suppression and marginalization. For the comprehensive report on the Darfur conflict and the United Nations assessment of the current military situation there we cross over to our east african correspondent james Feminula.
0: for more than 16 years the people of sudan's volatile southwestern region of Darfur have lived under constant fear not fear of the unknown but fear of the sudan's government in Khartoum, the very government they have known fear of being killed by bombs dropped in their residential places in rural areas and towns by soviet-made military planes the people have lived with stress combined with fear and the majority of them sadly speaking live in stone-walled caves where the huge stones surrounding the caves apparently protect them from being killed the conflict in Darfur involves Sudanese troops and rebels that have been waging war against it. One rebel force fighting President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir's government in Khartoum is known as Sudan Liberation Army, in short SLA. The other rebel outfit is Justice Equality Movement, known by its acronym JEM. The groups are open and explicit in their accusation against the Khartoum government. They claim that the government in Khartoum has suppressed them, has oppressed them, and marginalized and neglected them. Them meaning the black people of Darfur. The people of Darfur assert that the government using its military aircraft and the so-called Khartoum-backed Arab Janjaweed militiamen has gone on a full throttle to obliterate them from the region and so far, as has been said at the beginning, more than 300,000 innocent people have been killed in the region since 2003. The killings in Dafu prompted the Hague-based International Criminal Court, ICC, to conduct its own investigation, which led to the issuance of a warrant of arrest for President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir on March 4, 2009. Since the warrant of arrest was issued seven years ago, al-Bashir has remained evasive, traveling freely and without fear of arrest by the ICC. But President al-Bashir has restricted his travels in friendly African countries and never stepped foot in any of the European nations where his arrest would have been instant or imminent. Still the ICC believes that one day Al Bashir will fall into its legal net and frog marched to the Hague in the Netherlands the seat of the ICC to face various criminal charges including genocide in the troubled region of Darfur remarks made recently by Mark Zakuma officer in charge of civil affairs for the joint african union united nations mission in dafu form a clear truthful testimony that tells us that it is too early to declare an end to intercommunal conflict in sudan's troubled dafu region here is how zakuma summarizes the dafu conflict
5: as foreigners we do not pretend to understand completely the causes of the conflict in Darfur. We depend on information from our national counterparts, from the victims and our local stakeholders. Now having said that, what we've been told or what we see are some of the causes of the conflict. Mostly they have to do with competition over natural resources. The farmers who are sedentary farmers who cultivate the soil compete with the nomadic communities who actually are animal keepers over scarce water resources and fodder and pasture. We also have competition, fight over land title. The competition over of, of land has a long history, but bottom line it is one the main cause of the conflict in Darfur. Our role is only purely supportive or we facilitate government response to some of these conflicts. But as part of our mandate as UNAMID, we are enjoined to assist in resolving these disputes. We have supported some specific reconciliation processes using our resources across Darfur and also in Khartoum. We have an office in Khartoum. We engage the communities, the feeding communities from the grassroots through workshops, consultations, which sometimes culminate in peace conferences. Like I can mention two particular processes that we've been engaged in. We have the Malaya Resigat, which we facilitated all the way from the grassroots to Khartoum. We also are supporting the Betty Zayadia peace process in North Darfur. These are just two examples. Now we also do early warning and prevention. By virtue of our presence across Darfur as a mission, our uniformed personnel, the police, and the components, our presence alone serves as a deterrent in a potential conflict. More importantly, civil affairs staff deployed at the team sites serve as the eyes and ears of the mission. So whenever there is a, a warning of an imminent attack, we raise a flag and try to rally all stakeholders to intervene so it doesn't materialize into a large-scale conflict. Reflecting
0: on the challenges currently facing the African Union-United Nations mission in Darfur, Mike Zakuma pointed out the following task points that point to the saddening truth that the Darfur conflict is here to stay.
5: The challenges are categorized into two. Operational, which mainly have to do with access to the communities. Know that the terrain here is quite difficult so we do not have access to every community. That is one key challenge. Others are political in the absence of a comprehensive peace in Darfur. We are fighting in vain until all parties to the conflict come to the negotiation table and sign a peace agreement and adhere by it. We're not going to have peace in Darfur. So that's another challenge. And we also notice that there is no cogent or sustained policy, land policy in particular, on access generally to the use of natural resources across Darfur. And this continues to be one of the root causes. So until these are addressed at the policy level, do not see an end to the conflict anytime soon.
0: As Mike Zakuma, officer in charge of civil affairs in Dafu, has acknowledged rightly, the African Union United Nations mission there faces insurmountable challenges in the war rather place looking at the challenges in a different perspective, but which virtually concurs with the comments made by the civil affairs officer in Darfur, is Ashraf Eissa, spokesman for the African Union-United Nations mission in Darfur.
6: In addition to our administrative patrols and escorting humanitarian aid, we, de- we do these patrols to, uh, make, uh, to build confidence amongst the communities so that they see that we are there and we are discharging our mandate. And at the same time it acts as a a deterrent for uh, elements who might wish to uh, engage those vulnerable populations. Darfur is the size of France, the largest European country. So uh, what we try to do is we try to match our resources with the peacekeeping requirements on the ground, which means that the force commander and the force chief of staff for UNAMED have to develop approaches to uh, maximize the value of peacekeeping and match it with the current needs on the ground.
0: The voice of Ashraf Aissa, spokesman for the Joint African Union-United Nations mission in southwestern Sudan's volatile region of Darfur. Darfur, the epicenter of the conflict that pits Khartoum government troops and two rebel forces. Darfur, the epicenter of the conflict that has raged for 16 years and claimed lives of more than 300,000 people. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula
7: change your game game. be the voice of young african entrepreneurs change Your your game a program that promotes open discussion change your game we bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the african entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 1045 a.m. Central African Time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African Time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, says global development goals will be missed if there is no stronger international support. UNCTAD recently released its report on the least developed countries, focusing on countries that are graduating from being least developed. Likely failure to meet the graduation target for countries highlights the inadequacy of international support measures to the developmental needs at least developed countries or LCDs. The report therefore calls for improvements to such measures. For example, fulfilment by donors of their long-standing commitments to provide 0.15 to 0.20% of their national income for assistance to LDCs to make aid more stable and predictable and to align it more closely with national development strategies, among others. Senior advisor in the Division for Africa Least Developed Countries and special programs at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. David Woodward explains the process that could lead to a country graduating. The report is part of an annual series.
8: We put out a, a report on the least developed countries every year. This is the 2016 edition. And the least developed countries are a group of 48 countries, 34 of them in Africa, which are classified by the United Nations as being the least developed. By a number of criteria and each year we have a particular focus of the report this year the focus is on the process of graduating out of the ldc category so the background in terms of what the nature of the graduation process is the process how it works and so on and also policy recommendations for the international community and for national government in order to, to make the, the process work better
9: mm-hmm. Now, tell us about the countries that rated lower when you conducted this report.
8: The countries that performed less well in terms of progress towards graduation. Part of the reason for the report is that there was an international target set in 2011 that half of the least developed countries should graduate out of being LDCs by 2020. So, as part of the report, We've looked at which countries we think are likely to graduate within that time frame, and we found that it's likely that well under half will do so, so the target will be missed. Now, the African countries on the whole have performed less well in those terms. The island economies particularly have looked like getting much faster towards graduation, and most of the Asian least developed countries as well. The African countries that we have projected to graduate have been three of them, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, and Djibouti. Angola and Equatorial Guinea, of course, this is very largely a product of their very high incomes from oil exports. Djibouti, it's more to do with services exports. Now, several other African countries are reasonably on track, but unlikely to graduate within the time frame that we were looking at, which is up to 2024. So countries such as uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, Rwanda. Then, of course, at the other end of the scale, I mean, to take the extreme cases, countries such as Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, particularly, you know, are quite a long way off that target for quite obvious reasons. But the, the main thing we're emphasizing in the report is that it's not just a question of meeting the statistical criteria for graduation, that underlying that there needs to be a process of structural transformation of the economy and of developing the productive capacities in the economy. So that there is a really solid foundation for development rather than just looking to meet the statistical criteria which apply to things like gross national income per capita, measures of the vulnerability of the economy, and human assets in terms of health and education.
9: Mm -hmm. And you point out the issue of poverty which seems to be growing in these less developed countries.
8: Well, poverty is not actually increasing, I I should perhaps make that clear. Uh, What's happening is that poverty is falling, I mean it's increasing in some of the countries but not across the least developed countries as a whole. What's happening is that poverty is falling much more slowly in the least developed countries than in the rest of the developing world. If you look at countries like uh, India and China. some of the other sort of emerging economy markets. We're seeing quite rapid reductions in poverty as measured by the World Bank. Across the least developed countries as a whole, it's falling much more slowly. So as a result of that, the poverty that is left is becoming increasingly concentrated in the least developed countries. So it's now probably 43, 44 percent of all global extreme poverty is now concentrated in these 48 countries.
9: And would graduation mean that the country has now succeeded in development?
8: In theory, up to a point anyway. What we've argued in the report is that you shouldn't see graduation or countries shouldn't see graduation as an end in itself. It's not the winning post of a race to stop being a least developed country. It's the first milestone in a marathon of development. So you don't sprint the first kilometer of a marathon. So just rushing to meet the criteria is not enough. How a country graduates is as important as when it graduates. So in moving towards that graduation point, a country needs to establish the foundations for its development after graduation. There are still a lot of pitfalls ahead. Countries can reach graduation, but still be heavily dependent on commodity exports as is the case in Angola or Equatorial Guinea, for example, which are coming up towards graduation. They are still critically dependent on oil exports. And to have a more solid foundation, they need to diversify and to develop other sectors. Similarly, there is the middle income trap, which has been encountered by a number of more advanced developing countries. And in order to avoid a middle income trap, you have to prepare a long way in advance. So countries should be anticipating that even before they reach graduation to make sure that they have a solid foundation for long-term development.
9: And finally, what are the recommendations that the report makes in terms of the least development countries, what they can do, where they can go, and how they can tackle the issues that are challenging those
8: countries? It's very important for countries to take the leadership role in their own development strategies. This is one of the lessons that we've drawn particularly looking at the countries which have graduated in the past. There are four countries, Botswana, Samoa, Maldives, and Cabo Verde, two of them in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the things that we found in looking at those countries is that they took quite a strong position in terms of planning their own development process. But not only that, but also making sure that the aid they received was aligned with their development priorities, taking a very proactive role in terms of making sure that they were dictating the course of their own development rather than being pushed in directions preferred by their donors. So it's partly that and partly taking strong national position to pursue policies which will promote the development of their productive capacities and to transform their economies, focusing particularly on uh, rural development, as I said, but also in terms of industrial and sectoral policies to tackle general problems which are impeding their development, and also to promote sectors of production which will actively support their development process in a strategic
1: way. David Woodward, Senior Advisor in the Division for Africa Least Developed Countries, and special programs at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development on the line to Tutu Ngobeni.
10: Agro Africa Hello. From the first Wednesday of this month, Agro Africa will be coming to you at 9.20 a.m. Central African time and on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Central African time. Tune in to Agro Africa and listen to stories about agriculture and its development in the African continent. We are on shortwave, internet live streaming, and DSTV audio bouquet channel 802. Agro-Africa, bringing agriculture to the comfort of your home. Agro-Africa.
1: The international lobby group Human Rights Watch is calling on the Kenyan government to speed up the exercise of compensating victims on sexual violence incurred under the reign of previous governments. A reporter in Mombasa, Diane Wonyoni, prepared this feature on the plight of rape victims in Kenya.
3: After the 2007-2008 post-election violence, the Kenyan government established a Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission, TJRC, to help heal historical grievances, the TGRC looked into injustices and human rights violations that happened between 1963 and 2008 and compiled a report that outlines a reparations framework for a broad range of rights violations, including sexual violence. The TJRC received a total of 1,104 statements representing 2,646 women and 346 men, who were victims of sexual violence during security operations by police and military, political, resource and ethnic conflicts, massacres, unlawful detection and torture. Sexual violence was inflicted through rape, sexual enslavement and slavery, forced circumcision of men, genital mutilation, male castration and sexual assaults such as tying women's breasts with rubber bands, squeezing their breasts with pliers and squeezing men's testicles. The atrocities caused physical, psychological and social harm to both the victims and their families. Among the five recommendations in the TJRC report to address the sexual violations, was the provision of reparations for survivors of sexual violence. Maimuna Sudi, this is not her real name, is a rape survivor of the Wagala massacre of ethnic Somalis by Kenyan security forces on tenth February 1984 in Wajir County. According to a commissioner with the Tjrc, the Wagala massacre represents the worst human rights violation in the Kenya's history. Showing me the scars she sustained on her thighs and hands during the incidents, Maimuna said that she was raped by police officers who were holding their husbands hostage.
11: February, tare, kumi, amaansa wana yetu. Anabilika kawanja, Wagala.
12: On 10th February 1984, the government took our husbands from our houses to a gala Field. We started crying and decided to search for our husbands where they are. We prepared some food for them. As we were on our way to where they were, we met many police and military officers who were on guard. They asked us where we are going to. We were in a group of women. We told them we are going to see and take food to our husbands, who policemen arrested earlier that morning. They warned us not to take another step as they told us that they were now our husbands. We pleaded with them to let us go, and that's when they started beating us. Women who ran away were followed and raped. I attempted to fight one police officer, that is when five of them came and forced me on the ground and raped me. I was rescued later in the evening by a good Samaritan who were also searching for their missing family members.
3: Tears rolling from her eyes, she said many women were raped, but they were all afraid to report the matter to the police for fear of being raped again.
12: Police raped me, they abused me too. These scars are reminders of the sexual violence against me by the policemen. We decided to keep quiet on what happened to us because we were afraid of the police offices and also to report the matters to the nearby police station because we thought... They will rape us again and again, so we decided to remain inside our houses. Sometimes in 2010, we were educated by a group of human rights on the need for us to fight for our rights. Then thereafter, when TGRC was formed, they came and helped us to fight for our justice. All we want is our right, and we also want to have gender-based violence rescue centers in Wajir because I know of 38 women who were sexually abused and others who did not survive and The center will enable us as victims to meet so that we can talk openly and educate each other on our rights.
3: Teresa Wafula, this is not her real name, is another victim of sexual abuse. This happened during the post election violence of two thousand seven-two thousand eight in the Mount Elgon area of western Kenya, where the rebels Sabautland Defence Force and the Kenya military were responsible for killing, torture and rape of civilians.
13: Kwasi Nanane, atukupata Matibabu. In 2007, 2008, we women we suffered a lot through rape, and we did not get medical treatment during the clashes. As sexual violence victims, we have severally urged the Kenyan government. To help us but nothing has been done women have been rejected by their spouse some women victims have also been chased away by their husbands and children are living in pathetic conditions because of being victimized it is time for the kenyan government to step in and help those women so as to live peacefully by either buying land for them and give them some money so as to start business
3: For Teresa, who lost both her husband and her businesses during the violence, they have not been compensated up to date and many women who are survivors are still languishing in poverty, pain and rejection.
13: I lost my property during the clashes in 2007-2008. My houses were raised down by hooligans and now, I'm homeless. I depend on the neighbors to help me. I now depend on selling firewood that I fetch from a nearby forest, though I still have fear to continue fetching firewood because during the skirmishes, we were raped with our daughters in the forest when we were seeking refuge. We are still pleading with the government to give us money so that we can buy land, so that we can settle with our children.
3: According to Agnes Odiambo, a researcher with the women's rights division of Human Rights Watch, rape survivors are still facing stigma in their families and their communities. She blames the Kenyan government for not fully handling and tackling the issue of victims of gender based violence by ensuring they get justice.
11: There is no justice that was done to these victims because most of the victims were not able to go to the hospitals or even to courts due to the skirmishes that was there in that time. And also some women are not able to identify who the perpetrators were. But there are ways which the government can use to hold accountable the perpetrators. But what we have seen, that there is no willingness from the government to hold them accountable.
3: As Kenya is preparing to hold general elections in August 2017, Agnes is concerned that most of the survivors of rape will be afraid to take part in the voting for fear of being a soft target to perpetrators again
11: what is saddening us is that we are heading to election in 2017. These women say that they are afraid and even during election some of them go into hiding so as not to participate in election exercise and that's why we are asking the government for how long will these women suffer because every time we participate in general elections they remember what happened to them it brings back the memory. Of what happened to them, and as we are talking about reparations as per TJRC, it is a very important thing of protecting them. In March 2015,
3: during his annual address to the nation. Kenya's President Huru Kenyatta offered an apology to the country's citizens for all past wrongs committed by the current and past governments. He said a 10 billion shilling fund, equivalent to 100 million US dollars, will be established for a period of three years to be used for restorative justice. Jacqueline Mutere is the founder of the Community-Based Grace Agenda, an organization that supports women and girls who survived sexual violence in Kenya. She elaborates more on restorative funds. Tangu rais ten billion fund since the time President Uhuru Kenyatta billion. announced. On the funds of reparations, we are still getting a hard time to reach and talk to him in person about some of the violence that had very long-lasting effects. And that's why we are discussing with the victims, policymakers and civil societies on the far-reaching effects of the violence so that we can solve it once and for all. And also when they are compensated or given aid by the government, they will be able to know how best to help them for the benefit of the victims. She added that the Kenyan government should also take responsibility for children who are born because of the sexual abuse, because they are prone to rejection. Back to Agnes Odhiambo of Human Rights Watch, who has the following recommendation for the Kenyan government about helping rape survivors in the country.
11: What you want is the government to know and recognize that sexually abused victims are there and they have problems and they also have rights to get reparations. We also want policy on how reparation will be gotten, to look for victims, to register them, get evidence and also to involve women in reparation process.
3: That was Agnes Odhiambo, a senior researcher with the Women's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. What now remains for the Kenyan government is to ensure justice for the victim of politically motivated sexual violence before the 2017 election. Reporting for Channel Africa in Mombasa, I am Diana Wanyonyi.
7: Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605 so, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605 47 Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance.
1: UN AIDS, the world body that spearheads research on HIV AIDS, has been calling for people to stand in solidarity with the 78 million infected and 35 million who have died of AIDS-related illnesses. The call is coming at a time when many more people are abandoning discrimination against those living with the disease. But in Cameroon, like many sub-Saharan countries, a major problem has been the shortage of antiretroviral drugs that sustain the lives of people living with HIV and AIDS. This report from our correspondent Moki Kinzika in Yawandi.
14: These are the voices of members of the Association of People Living with AIDS in Cameroon. They say a critical shortage of antiretroviral drugs has hit the country. 36-year-old Mathieu Mvonbo says their health conditions are becoming worse. Nous avons des difficultés parce que pour la, la, avoir au c'est très parce que to l'arrêt have l'arrêt access to treatment is l'arrêt very l'arrêt difficult a, when you go to the hospital
10: you are told that l'arrêt l'arrêt there is nothing or that you should come again after one week a, a because antivirals <coughs> are not available some molecules were, not, were not available so the, the doctors gave alternatives since we cannot live without
14: antivirals pour lui donner une autre molécule parce qu'il ne faut pas qu'il reste sans avoir les anti-rétroviraux. Mathilde aide that people living with AIDS all over Cameroon have been complaining to their association and to the government of Cameroon. Yet little is done to help them.
10: This morning, there were no medicines at the La Quintini Hospital in Douala and in Maroua. There are patients complaining, so I think that something should be done, and quickly too, for them to have their treatment. As you may know, when you are not treated, your body develops resistance, meaning that when the medication will be available, it may not be effective. And some of us will be forced to go to Europe for treatment when we do not have the means. The government should raise money and supply the antiretrovirus. Débloquer ce financement pour
14: acheter des médicaments pour que les personnes qui continuent à souffrir du manque médicaments ne plus plus avoir ce problème. As a result of the shortage, most patients are already switched to other forms of the life-saving drugs. But the 42-year-old Janine Kwake says most pharmacies had either run low on supply or had completely run out of the
15: drugs.
12: When people living with AIDS, like me, go to the pharmacy, we are told that our molecules are not available. They ask us to go back to our doctors so that the prescription should be changed. So all the the times, times we are forced to to now change change our treatment.
14: With the persistent shortage, Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, ordered that some 10 million United States dollars be withdrawn from the state treasury for the supply of the drugs. Janine says the money has not been disbursed.
12: The head of state has signed a decree, but it does not mean that the money is already available. It is still going to be a long process before the Minister of Finance disburses the money. What we are doing now is preparing correspondences to encourage them to make available the funds. We have always sacrificed and refused to go to the streets because we want to know what is happening before we can start protesting. Cameroon's
14: Minister of Public Health, André Mamafuda, has attributed the shortage to the increasing number of people receiving antiretrovirals, that is, 42% of people in need of it. He says government's subvention for the drugs has been stagnant, while funds from the Global Fund for AIDS have reduced by
10: 30
5: percent, for the past 18 months we have witnessed shortages in stock because of insufficient resources. Demand was very high, and we did not have enough time to buy and stock antiretroviral drugs.
10: We tensions in stock, and sometimes certain ruptures of molecules.
14: Mama Fuda asked that besides the presidential grants, they are thinking of generating funds locally to take care of the growing needs of people living with
5: AIDS. We are today thinking of creating a support fund for health. This will permit us to raise additional funds. We also have another approach to convince enterprises to contribute for the purchase of antiretroviral drugs.
14: The Global Fund approved a 20 million United States dollar grant agreement for HIV treatment, while Cameroon said it will nearly double the amount for purchasing antiretroviral medicines in its annual budget, which will increase to 20 million United States dollars from barely 11 million. The new joint funding initiatives are expected to secure antiretroviral treatment to 122,000 people who have subvention for treatment from the state, but about 150,000 others still have to wait for the government to negotiate funds for their treatment. Reporting for Channel Africa,
1: this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this hour. From myself, Brett Wilkinson, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, P.O. Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006. Or send us an SMS to plus +27 27823325905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
15: The Central African Republic is a landlocked nation bordered by Cameroon, Chad, the Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Republic of Congo. The Ubangi and the Shari are the largest of many rivers. It is situated about 805 kilometers north of the equator. Much of the country consists of flat or rolling plateau savanna, about 500 meters above sea level. In the northeast are the Fertit Hills and there are scattered hills in the southwestern part of the country. To the northwest are the Karé Mountains, a granite plateau with an altitude of 1,143 meters. From the 16th to 19th century, the people of this region were ravaged by slave traders. The Banda, Baya Ngabandi and Azande made up the largest ethnic groups. The French occupied the region in 1894 as the colony of ubangi Shari, which is now the Central African Republic, was united with Chad in 1905. In 1910, it was joined with Gabon and the Middle Congo to become French Equatorial Africa. After World War II, a rebellion in 1946, forced the French to grant self-government. In 1958, the territory voted to become an autonomous republic within the French community, and on August 13, 1960, President David Dako proclaimed the republic's independence from France. Dako moved the country politically into Beijing's orbit, but he was overthrown in a coup on December 31, 1965, by Colonel Jean Berdel-Bokassa, Army Chief of Staff. On December of 1976, the Central African Republic became the Central African Empire. Marshal jean bedel Bocasso, who had ruled the republic since he took power in 1965, was declared Emperor Bocasso I. Brutality and excess characterized his regime. He was overthrown in a coup on September of 1979. Former President David Dacko returned to power and changed the country's name back to the Central African Republic. An army coup on September of 1981 deposed President Dako yet again. In 1991, President Andre Kolingba, under pressure, announced a move toward parliamentary democracy. In elections held in August 1993, Prime Minister Ange Felix Potosi defeated Kolingba. Part of Potosi's popularity rested on his pledge to pay back the salaries of the military and civil servants. Potassi survived a coup attempt in May 2001, but two years later, in March 2003, he was overthrown by General Francois Bozize. After two years of military rule, presidential elections were held, and Bozize won in what international monitors called a free and fair election. In presidential elections in 2011, incumbent François Bozize won a re-election with 64.4% of the vote. In March 2013, Bozize was ousted by rebels from the northern part of the country. The rebels, who were mostly Muslim and collectively known as Seleka, have been engaged in battles with government troops and said they overthrew Bozize because he failed to follow through on earlier peace deals. Aziz's presidency was marred by allegations of corruption and coinism. The current president is Catherine Samba-Panza and the prime minister is Mohamed Kamu. The capital city of the CAR is Bangui and the country has an estimated population of 5 million. The monetary unit used is the CFA franc.